It's the Questions Hip Hop Podcast, and this is a crossover episode? Maybe? Let me explain. First of all, my name is Sean Kantrowitz, and before I brought the questions over into the podcast realm, I had another show called Can't Knock the Shuffle, which was also on the Stony Island Audio Network. Some of you maybe heard it. Looking at the numbers, there's more of you who have not heard it than who have heard it. So Can't Knock the Shuffle had a very simple, but I'd say somewhat unique format. I take all of the songs that an artist has recorded and released, and I put them into a playlist. And then I let the algorithm randomly select seven songs, and I talk about the making of those songs with the artist. Not only does this result in some pretty interesting conversation, but for some of these songs, I know that they have never been discussed in an interview. So I did two seasons of that show, and then I took a break and began focusing more on the questions for a couple of reasons. First of all, there was so much happening in the world of the questions that it just started feeling more and more ridiculous that there was no podcast attached to the questions. And number two, I was doing Can't Knock the Shuffle as part of like a seasonal format. So basically, I would record a whole slew of episodes, I'd edit them, and then I'd roll them out in batches. And it started to feel a little daunting for me to have to complete eight to 10 episodes all at once before launching into the next season of the show. So I said, nah, you know what? I'm taking a break. But ever since then, I've had so many people ask me about when Can't Knock the Shuffle is coming back. You keep asking, I keep dodging it. You keep asking. And since I've kind of opened up the format of what falls under the questions umbrella, you know, we do new episodes, classic episodes, bracket episodes, the Making Elmatic series, all of that made me realize I can do Can't Knock the Shuffle like I do with all of those other types of series. I'm going to throw them into the rotation, and I already actually have a new one that has already been recorded, and it's going to be popping up in the feed very soon. But in the meantime, to let you know it was coming and to introduce the concept to those of you who maybe haven't heard it, this week's episode is a throwback to the very first episode of Can't Knock the Shuffle that I recorded in 2020 with Merce. I'm keeping the whole intro that I recorded for that episode back then, and you know, the, the recording approach that I was using then is a little different than what I do now, but it's still an excellent episode. And you know Merce if you know underground hip-hop from the last two decades. In the time since recording this episode, which I did in the summer of 2020, Merce and I have actually released a bunch of music together on our own. We put out five singles in 2022, as well as several songs on the These Hands album that he recorded last year with The Grouch and Reverie. I really enjoyed this one, and Merce was a great sport even going to his car to finish recording this episode when he started having issues with the Wi-Fi on his computer. I hope you enjoy this one. It's a Can't Knock the Shuffle classic episode with Merce, and it starts right now. Who did it first? Who did it best? Who did it worst? That's the question. Who rapping there? That remix, and what happened when? That's the question. And if you ain't know what needs, then my guy's doing what you need. Some answers to the questions. This episode's special guest is the rapper Merce. 
Merce has been consistently releasing music since the late 90s, and he's been repping his home in Los Angeles the entire time. Merce is incredibly prolific. To my estimate, his catalog is somewhere around 600 songs, and he's released tracks and albums with everybody in the business. Snoop Dogg, LP from Run The Jewels, longtime producer and collaborator Ninth Wonder, Daryl Jennifer from legendary punk rock band Bad Brains, and with groups like Living Legends, Three Melancholy Gypsies, and Felt, his side project with Slug from Atmosphere. He's done it all almost exclusively on an independent level, making his own rules without compromising his credibility. Today, Merce is going to tell me the stories behind a handful of the songs from his catalog that have been selected at random. So, Merce, how's it going? I'm all right. Wait, randomly? You didn't choose the good ones? <laughs> Listen, the whole conceit of this show is that it's random. If I had any hand in choosing the songs, it would undermine the entire theme. Oh, that's painful. Okay. Uh, but look, it won't be a problem for you because you don't have any bad songs in your catalog. This is bad. I didn't know it was random. Oh, man. Song one. So I didn't plan it this way, but the first song we have up is from one of your earlier albums. It's called My Story off of Good Music, which you put out in 1999. What is it like for you to hear a song that's from this era? Feels bad. Feels real bad. Horrible. Awful. I wasn't rapping on beat. I wasn't in the pocket. I couldn't count bars. I was recording myself most of the time. Now, in your defense, I guess defending you against yourself, a lot of most rappers' earlier material can be very super loose, very lyrical miracle. This seems a bit more thematic and a little more vulnerable. I would say that this might be one of the better constructed songs on the album. Mm, yeah, I don't know. There's no hook on this song, and there's a horrible punch. Horrible punch. I don't know, man. It, was, it definitely is introspective. I was definitely moving away from lyrical miracles when it came to good music. But I feel like once I got to making albums, I was really... I never went too hard there. I never had a whole album of Lyrical Miracles. This was the first album that I had, uh, I think, ah, a girl song on about eating pussy. So I didn't have much to talk about other than myself and Whack MCs still. No, you know what? This had a song about my mother on there and a song about eating pussy. So it was balanced. I always try to be like Tupac, you know? Keep your head up, I get around, you know? But this song yeah, was kind of me just talking about what it's like to be a young black male in Los Angeles, which was talked about a lot in the 90s, but they kind of missed the part about, like, you know, introspection and authenticity and telling the full story. They just told the part about the bitches and the guns and the drugs. They didn't tell a part about, like, domestic violence and all that other stuff. This was 1999, so how old were you at the time? I'm 21. Okay, so who's guiding you at this point? Is anybody overseeing the album? Like, do you have the homies weighing in, or is it just you? I'm, I was cringy hearing my own voice back then. So, I, like, a lot of rappers, as soon as you get in their car, they'll play you their whole shit. Like, I would never play my shit for anyone. It was just me and me and me and me. And uh, and fans, you know what I mean? I would, like, if it didn't sell or I would listen to what fans told me, what songs they liked, and I would... But I'd never play it for friends or family. 
they bought it when it was out and they listened to it great. So I was mixing, mastering, recording, writing, everything. Very insulated process. But how did you know what to do? Like, who was, like... I, I, I definitely watched Grouch and Mystic Journeyman, you know, um, E-40 and Dell. Like, Dell was the first person that could, had lyrical miracles. He was definitely known for lyrical miracles, but he always had songs of about other topics. Right. Same with E-40. Like, he's diverse for his genre, you know? Uh, so those were the people I was looking... In Pac, you know, always Pac. Just trying to be diverse. You got to talk about the streets, but you got to talk about the streets in an ignorant way, an uh, 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 introspective way. Um, talk about women in a, in a wild way, in a, in a sane, more sane way. You know, give that. There's even like a props to my mom on the album. It's like, Dear Mama, it's like really just a lot, a lot of me wanting to be Tupac and make strictly N words part two. So I imagine this was still the era of you selling albums hand to hand at shows, after shows, outside of other people's shows. Was there any measurable growth in your career that you felt came from the Good Music album? Like, I know you said you were still trying to find your voice, but when all was said and done, do you feel like it accomplished what you set out to do? Oh, no, definitely. I mean, a lot of these kind of me also being the label and the marketing team, along with the engineer and the writer, it put Merce where he needed to be, like, as far our label as Veritech Records, um, it was a double CD. Um, I was the first rapper in our scene to have a double CD because E-40 had one. And guess who else had one? Tupac. So um, E-40 and Tupac had one, so I had to have one. But then also this feature of enhanced CDs that just came out. And I was the first indie rapper with the enhanced CD. That's right. So then I took the album and then I did, you know, I did like Never Eat, the song with the Eat About Eating Pussy. I made that song. Elusive gave it to me because I had so much bass. And at this time, me and my brother were still cruising Crenshaw and all the homies were. And I didn't really make stuff for my homies, but that one I played. And then I took my video camera that I bought to the hood while we played that song and then just interviewed some of the homies so people could get the atmosphere around that album in that time. And then I had it made into an enhanced CD because I had this money from Japan. So I used the budget that they gave me to record for the Japanese release to make it a double CD. So did it move me? Yeah, moving forward technologically, like I'm always like pushing the like first rapper on Twitch, first rapper with the podcast, first rapper. You know what I mean? Like you know, no one else is doing. I'm always trying. Like even in within our crew, like a lot of the dudes in our crew didn't have color album covers, and I was like, fuck it, I'll pay the two dollars per copy at Kinko's just to have color thing. You know what I mean? So we're just all always just trying to push the envelope forward technologically. So I think that put me in a new light. I don't know. Yeah, I think, yeah, it got us money. got me my VS840, which I recorded a lot of shit on. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure this album got stolen. I wrote this in a pad, and I had all the beats on a mini disc. I went to Amoeba. I checked my bag. Even though I was a regular there, they made me check my bag. And I was just getting off the Greyhound, so I had like 100 tapes in my backpack that they were going to buy for me. And they needed to count all the tapes, make sure I filled the order correctly. I had my book of CDs, like a hundred CD binder with my CD Walkman. Literally a hundred CDs and my CD Walkman, my rhyme book, my mini disc player with the um, beats for the new album on there. I was going to record it with Eclipse 427 at his house. I gave the dude my uh, bag, got my little paper clip, went and started looking at tapes and CDs that I could get for the ride home. And I uh, came back to get my bag and the dude's like, I don't know where it went. He's like, someone, you're one of the ones, someone jumped over the counter and stole all the backpacks back out here and ran out. 
And they felt so bad. They gave me a new CD player. They let me go through and take every CD that I lost. But my lyrics and beats are gone. So this album is actually a remake of whatever good music. I don't even remember what it's originally going to be. So you were just doing that for memory? No, I had to write new songs, get new beats, write new songs. Damn. I learned early about attachment from my mom. She was very strict and like, I got an F on my report card one time and like she took away my Christmas presents for a whole semester and I was grounded for an entire semester. She would like take away my friends, like you can't hang out with him and then like drive by their houses to make sure I wasn't hanging out with them. Like, and we moved a lot. So I, it was like the final step of me, like being completely Zen, like or Buddhist where like I have no attachment to anything. That lesson has served me well in life. And uh, I probably made a better album because of it. And anybody else, lost their shit but i was so cool like people like me like all right what can we do i was like what can you do like i've been coming here for years you know what i mean like i know this shit shit happens they're like man just can, can we give you anything else and they wrote me a check for my mini disc player like right there on the spot so shout out to karen and the people at amiibo they were super chill about it and like i was super chill about it. i was like okay i just gotta write a new album Song two. All right, and we're going to jump forward to 2008. This is a song from the Sweet Lord album, and the song is called Are You Ready? I was the last one chosen for the first team. Now welcome y'all to the ninth one, the first dream. Ghetto music with a purpose. Y'all know we do this at your service. Two of the world's most respected musicians are now at work. I suggest you listen. That was a great album. Okay, so this is the third album that you and Ninth Wonder recorded together, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And you guys also released this totally for free, if I'm recalling correctly. Yes. First of, like, mixtapes, when people were having mixtapes. Before we knew what to call it, but people giving away free shit, we were doing it. What was the Sweet Lord recording process like? Man, that was amazing. Uh, we have both kind of made it at that point. We recorded that album at Ninth House. Uh, little brother had just broke up. And I, you know, this is my third time. I would come every November to record an album with Ninth, like clockwork. Man, we just lost his brother. Uh, spending spending um, Thanksgiving with him and his brother and his family, I would do every year. It was dope, man. His daughter, his youngest daughter, Jada, was just born, who actually produced a beat on The Iliad is Dead. So she, we were in charge of watching her kind of <laughs> while we were recording. Midway through this, we had to take a break. I went up to visit my wife now, saw her, and then I think in somewhere in there flew back to try to get back with my ex-girlfriend here and then flew back to North Carolina. And uh, Vita Guerra was on my flight. She lived in my in the Palazzo. I was living in the Palazzo in L.A. And she lived and we worked out together. Like, she really wouldn't work out together, but, like, I'd be on the treadmill. She's on the treadmill, right? She's seen me. I had huge dreadlocks. Like, you know what I mean? And I... The only seat left to go back to L.A. that night was first class. So I bought a first class ticket. So I'm sitting next to her in first class. She puts her headphones on and ignores me. No acknowledgement. Not even a neighborly, hey, like, I've seen you multiple, like, not just like once or twice at the gym. It's only a gym for people who live in our complex. And like, she knew I wasn't a creep. I never tried to creep her out of the gym. I never said shit to her. I didn't really give a fuck. I had various women living with me at the time. I was not. But I was like, just to be fucking rude? We're on a fucking five-hour flight together. Like, not a, hey, how much do you pay in rent? Hey, do you take this yoga class? Like, like fucking... So anyway, but yeah, the, what else is going through? Then, then uh, my brother graduated from college finally, and that's part of the outro of this album. I drove to Virginia to see my wife, 
flew back to LA to see my ex, flew back there, then flew to Florida to see my brother graduate. All things that we can't do now is, I guess, why it's so nice to talk about those things. <laughs> uh, but we finished this album, and it was after this that I got upstream to Warner Brothers, and Tom Wiley, the CEO of Warner Brothers, our president, uh, wanted to put this out instead of Merch for President. You mean, like, is the album? Yeah, he was just like, if this you if you want this to be your Warner Brothers release, I love it. What you and I do is magical. And I was like, I didn't fucking get upstream to fucking put out a Mercer Ninth Warner out. No offense. But they were cool enough to like, I was like, we still need to put this out. They're like, yeah, fucking put it out. And um, Warner Brothers didn't sweat me at all. And they were like, yeah, give it away for free. It was kind of like lead up or promo for the Warner Brothers album, right? Yeah. Which had Ninth production on it anyway. Yeah. Tom was like, you got to have Ninth on the album. So we flew Ninth and his wife out and we rented out the the Boom Boom Room. And uh, it's Will Smith Studio in the Valley. Where I met Matt, uh, Money Making Matt, who was the intern at the time, who was now A and R for Dreamville. Uh, so it was good, man. It was, it was. That was a, a that led to that. That was a good era. Night, yeah, Sweet Lord's a good era. This Ninth Wonder was definitely fucking with my voice. And you heard like, I think we make better raw albums. I think this was the start of us going into Forever, which may be a little too polished. But adding the girl going, "Are you ready? Ready?" Like. He's like, I got somebody to do this. Like, we would just usually record, boom, done. Most of the shit on 316 and Merge Revenge, and even Sweet Lord, it's all one take. Right. We're very raw. It doesn't let me do multiple takes. And then he was like, yeah, use this and uh, say this. And, you know, it was just, he was experimenting my voice. And, uh, like, Nina Ross is on there. He was telling me to rap like uh, Slick Rick and Biz Marquee on this. And another song is like, rap like Be Real. But we were, like, literally eating cereal in his house, watching his kids playing, you know, it was like we were we felt free, man. This is before like he got the responsibility of jam love, before I got the responsibility of a family. We were we were definitely very free. I'm flying coast to coast. It was a it was an interesting time. Song three. Similar era, uh, released a few years later. It's a song called Doing Me off the Melrose album. to keep my inner geek on the down low but i'm a weirdo it was hopeless not a zero i was the dopest before swag i had my own seeds so i started putting tags on these mcs and now all the girls think i'm cute plus i got a little confidence in game and shit. i want to say that you've told me this before that the melrose album which you did with producer and multi-instrumentalist terrace martin is your favorite album you've ever done Maybe, possibly, quite really my favorite collaboration and album that I've done ever in my life. Except for Love and Rockets 2, which isn't out yet. Man, I love working with Terrace. Once again, that's me, like, you know, advancing technology before Terrace Martin was a... What is it? What the fuck did Kendrick win? A Pulitzer? Herbie Hancock, Robert Glasper collaborating, Kendrick Lamar, TDE, Grammy-nominated genius. We were just hanging out. Um and making music like Melrose. It was fun, man. You know, uh, that was a great era of my life. I was literally just doing me. And uh, me and Terrace were very similar. So it was just super easy going, man. You like this beat? Cool. Go rap. I'm going to go play with my pit bulls or go fuck this girl. <laughs> Tell him, call me if you need me to take. He would literally go in and like do some wild shit and be like, okay, oh, start recording. 
you got it, you got it, you got it. I'm going to go do this and be doing something. I won't even talk about what he was doing. And then come back and be like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. Okay, you want to do another take? Okay, I'm just going to start at the beginning so I have more time. And then just let it play to the end. If you don't like the take, we'll do it again. And then I'll be like, all right, I finished. Do you want to hear it back? Nah, if you're good, I'm good. All right, peace. See you later. All right, man, I'm going to go back in the room. Hands off. Hands off, bro. I was hands off. He was hands off. And I guess that's why the fans have their hands fans off. <laughs> well, why do you think it is that fans had such a lukewarm response to an album that you loved so much? I think it's a side of me that I go left-leaning or underground-leaning or Aesop Rock, whatever you call that, emo rap-leaning or whatever it is, abstract, backpack-leaning on purpose because it's financially you know, more, uh, it's where your bread is buttered. Yeah. Where my bread is buttered. Uh, advantageously. I mean, that's where I make my money. I know my fan base or I don't, I know the fan base that's gravitating towards me and I cultivated it. I'm guilty of that. I'm, play, I'm playing to the crowd for this album. I didn't, I didn't play to the crowd. I was just me, but I can rarely be me with anyone because on, you know, so many sessions for Mercer president. I'll sit with these people I had Tomb sessions, Three Six Mafia sessions, premiere sessions, and they would think that I'm weird. You know, they don't get me. Terrace got me, and we get each other. You know what I mean? And uh, the way I'm a little left-leaning, Terrace is a little right-leaning. You know what I mean? So we just can exist in this place where we were both comfortable. And I think that's my most authentic album, like I said, other than this new album with DJ Fresh. What was the connection with Terrace? Like, obviously, I know you guys are both from L.A., but how did you guys link up and develop the working relationship? Uh, I first met him through Ted Chung, who's Snoop's manager, but was I was his first client, and he's been a friend of mine. He used to go by Slant from Korea, Slant Eyes, and he rapped in a group called Onomatopoeia. They have a really dope song called Incense on um, Beneath the Surface, if you ever want to get really deep, and that's now Snoop's manager. But he makes dope beats. So we've been friends for years since we were kids. He wanted to manage me, and when I signed to Warner Brothers, I needed some muscle in the building. And he was still VP of Snoop's label at the time, so he had some muscle. That's why I didn't get shelved or dropped or anything like anyone else. Right. Because of Ed and Russell Rideau. I was at his office one day, him and his cousin Singh, and I was at the office, Cashmere, which is a huge agency now. And uh, Terrace was downstairs waiting to meet with Ted because he had just produced the Doghouse compilation. He's like, you're Mercer. I was like, yeah. So he's like, I'm Terrace. He's like, he's like I know you. And uh, he said the name of my neighborhood, like the gang in my neighborhood. And a lot of people, like I said, because I'm left-leaning, people don't associate me with that. I was like, he's like, I used to date so-and-so who lived two houses down from you. I'm her baby's dad. And I was like, oh, shit. He's like, yeah, I met you a couple times. I know you don't remember. But yeah, I know who you really are, like type of shit. And I was like, oh, bro. And I was like, don't blow up my spot. Like, I got a good guy job as a backpacker, bro. Don't bring a crip shit into this. So, uh. You know, he continued his rise when I got a budget for Mercer President. Like, I didn't know what a budget was. He's like, I got, I got you just budget. And he was like, we're paying $6,000 for guitar. He was, that's just the way it goes, man. He's like, you got to order something. Like, I didn't know about the food budget and all that. You got to do this. You got. So he introduced me to the industry. And, uh, you know, we made some money together. Um, he was my guy to the industry. But he, was, he knew about the good life. And he knew about Freestyle Fellowship. And, you know, he was introduced me and Corrupt. And me and DJ Quick, like, and explain to me how those people like know who I am or know what this scene is, but they don't feel comfortable going over there and vice versa. So it was just like, I met Corrupt, Corrupt like, what do you want? What you want to do? Let's do it. Blah, blah. I'm like, wow. And DJ Quick was so nice. And like, I was like, man, I thought these people were against us this whole time. Like this scene, against the scene is not just, we just never bridged the gap. But that's how I met a terrorist, like just from Ted and we stayed in touch. And then 
when I got a budget, he showed me how to freak my budget. This was post major label, or was it still while you were kind of in that world? Because this is after the Warner Brothers record, Mercer President, right? Yeah, we recorded Melrose during Mercer President while we recorded Mercer President. This was like 07. So like him and like 1500 or nothing, he hooked me up with them. And uh, we were, you know, we just had sessions before everybody kind of went to the stratosphere. It's so funny hearing you talk about guys like corrupt and quick and how they were aware of what you were doing and even fucked with it, but they were so hesitant to sort of mix with your scene. It reminds me like when you hear about bears in the forest and how they're more afraid of you than you are of them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Ter like my manager called me and was like, yo, you should go meet with uh, quick. And I was like, I'm such a nerd and like, I don't know, scared. Like I push people away, but I was like in my house and I, I, just, I had some cowboy boots that I wore. I had some basketball shorts and cowboy boots and like walked into Snoop studio with a gang of Crips and motherfuckers was like, but I'm hopping out of a Mercedes SL 500. So it's just like motherfuckers like in my hair, sticking straight up. Motherfuckers had never seen anyone like me. And then they would try me, try me on some like Crip shit. And I'd be like, Oh, blah, blah, blah. And they'd be like, Oh, whoa. Like what is happening with this guy? You know? Like the first time I met Corrupt, I was so starstruck. We were in a video shoot. Terrence invited me to one of his video shoots. And there's bitches and bikinis and whatever. And then Corrupt's like, what's up, Merce? And immediately goes into a 96-bar verse in my ear. And I'm like, you're a rapper. Like, only person to ever do that to me is Planet Asia. You know what I mean? Like, rapping ass rapper. Yeah, that's it. And then that's what led to pay dues. And like me bringing DJ Quick out of Rock the Bells and showing my business partner, like, he is our Nas. He is our, you know, Corrupt is our you know, one of our fabulous or Big L or whoever people put on that level for the East Coast. Like, he's one of those dudes. So I did the show with, like, Ice Cube and Dog Pound and Jay Electronica and Raekwon and Psycho Realm. And, like, I was all about... Once I crossed that line in person, I felt a lot more comfortable crossing that line as a booking agent and putting together these things and bringing together the scene, you know, and also looking out. Because then back then, like, Problem, Scheme, Nipsey, like, Dom, like, they were all coming up. Casey Veggies, like, Terrace would, like, put me in the mix with all these people. And I'm like, yeah, okay, like, definitely got to have Black Hippie on here, you know? My, and my bookie, my, my partner would be like, who the fuck is that? I'm like, don't worry, like, this is an L.A. party. Like, I'm bringing every, I'm bringing Noah James, I'm bringing Curtis King, I'm bringing Black Hippie, I'm bringing Scheme, I'm bringing, you know? It became natural once I got to kick it, and they got to kick it with me. Because I'm as weird as you get from the other side. And they were like, oh, like, and that's where Melrose came from, because when I first met Terrence, he was like, Man, you got the kind of fans. You got the Asian bitches that be wearing shell toes on Melrose. Those are the girls you into, man. Like, you you know, you drink sun-dried water and you go to Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, bro. I had never been to Trader Joe's even at that point. All right, we're going into the underground shit that we spoke uh, of. It is a song called Signs, and it is on the Three Melancholy Gypsies album, Grand Caravan to the Rim of the World. My desire, fire, water, urban, my despair. Can't live with you or without you, girl. You know this shit's not fair. You say they give me space, you say I don't care. Give me when I'm in your face, when I'm not there. Can't ever seem to win for losing, girl. You know this shit's not fair. Me, I got four girls, I just can't decide which lucky young lady's gonna be my bride. My Aries, girl, always down to ride. But my Pisces, girl, wanna stay inside. She depressed like me, hella stressed like me. We get along fine, cause she just like me. Now for my Sagittarius, hella taller than me. But we don't care, we just try to have a good time. Whenever we go out because you travel so much. That seems like it is on the opposite side of town from Melrose. Yeah, man. I guess like for me, like when it's left leaning, I, I play the right side. You know what I mean? And when it's when I go on the right side, I play the left side. So I've always kind of I feel like I've always kind of been the same no matter where I am. 
But uh, yeah, that group is definitely that. That album was done after I signed my deal record collection, which was a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. And uh, I, I've always been uncomfortable with the spotlight. So I was like, let me get my boys and finally like do a 3MG album we've been trying to do since high school. Um, that name, Rim of the World, is actual high school in Big Bear, California. And my mom took us to Big Bear when we were all in high school. And we saw that. And I was like, we are like, that's what we should name the album. Grand Caravan to the Rim of the World. Because life is a journey. And then when you leave this plane of existence, you look back up from the Rim of the World. And it all makes sense from that perspective. We were 15, very deep kids. It sounds like there was also a lot of weed involved. Yeah, lots of weed. So, uh... We kept that name and we did this album. Doing this album, I had to like executive produce and kind of produce it. I give myself credit as producer on a lot of the songs because I finally know what a producer is, fucking with Terrace and like Quick and people like, you don't have to make the beat. George Clinton is a producer, but he doesn't make music. Right. So I had some shows coming up in LA. I was like, how about we do these shows? We take all the money. We fly our equipment and ourselves out to London because I was really into grime in like 05, 06. Oh, yeah, it might have been 04. I said, yo, let's let's go record this album. I really want to try to go out to Fabric and like these UK clubs and like get some grime influence on this album because I believe like this is the future of rap. You know, in this 04, I was probably a decade and a half off. But Dirty Goods and like Wiley and Esky Beat and like all that shit was like so fascinating to me. So we got this house and it turned out to be a place called Billa Ricky, which is two hours outside of London. Um, to use the internet, we had to go to the local library. I don't believe anyone in town had ever seen a black person in real life. It was a farm town. It was crazy. We got a house. I made sure we got a house with the pool. It rained most of the time. Scarab trapped himself in a room reading to got Don Quixote. He wouldn't really hang out with us. Eli, as I learned later, was having withdrawals because he had a serious um, drug issue at the time. And I flew him away from his Kenneck and his plug, but he wouldn't tell me. Um, he's been 13 years clean now, but at this time. So he's in his room, dope sick. Scarab is that. So I'm like, that's how I became the producer. I'm like, yo, this song is going to be about this. Here's my verse. This is the beat we're going to use for this song. Everybody coming in and we're recording in the kitchen, eating beans and toast and like oven sandwiches every day. Danger Mouse calls me as like, yo, I'm in London. You out here? I'm like, yeah. And I don't know how we were communicating back then. Just, I think maybe he left me a MySpace message. This is like when he started working, the, I don't, maybe the first gorillas or something. He's like, I'm out here coming to the club. And I'm like, yo, Danger Mouse wants to go. And they're like, we don't want to go to London. So I'm like, going to London by myself. Then I meet some girls. And then when I meet the girls, they're like, yeah, you met girls. We'll come to London next. So then we started doing. And then we wrote a song about girls and in, 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 uh, astrological signs because girls love astrological signs. A lot of them do. Um, we came to the States. We filmed a video. My friend um, Eric Payton, who I just recently, he just shot the movie Walk Like a Man, the short film for me. And I convinced him to quit his job at AT&T. It's like, do you want to be a director? Yeah. And uh, because of me, he's now the executive producer of, uh, or the CEO or whatever of Steph Curry's film company. And he has, they have the mini golf show that's now syndicated on CBS or whatever and all these other endeavors. But had I not given him his big break with Walk Like a Man and the signs video and convinced him to quit his job at AT&T, he wouldn't be where he is. So... That's um, my name drop for that story. So how long were you guys out in the house recording this? Maybe two and a half weeks, three weeks. I got to go to Wimbledon, watch the whole Euro Cup. And uh, I would say Ty, my homie that just passed away from COVID, rest in peace, he uh, took us around Brixton. It was a blessing because we were just trapped in Billericay with a bunch of white people. But yeah, about two and a half weeks. 
Long enough to know that summer doesn't exist in London or in the UK. So far. All right, next up. This one I'm sure you've told some stories about before. It's called Freak These Tales from 316, the ninth edition. So once upon a time in the land around the way, there lived a couple girls that would never give me play. Used to wear tight shirts and short skirts every day. Every time I try to hit it, they say no way. Until one fine day in this land of LA, we finally slipped. And she let me have my way She kind of turned me out Changed my life, I must say Cause I haven't stopped chasing these bars to this day now, So this one is definitely the too short homage, right? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah To a song um, I never owned what do you mean you never owned it? I was never allowed to buy the Too Short album. This is just a song I heard at my friend's house. I was scared to have any Too Short tapes in my house. I mean, look, nobody is ever going to argue that Too Short's music isn't risque. How did you first start working with Ninth Wonder and connect with them? I know we talked a little bit about your guys' workflow. I met Ninth through my friend Ian Davis, who on the three six on the end of the beginning tour, the My Way and the Highway tour, played me some beats, and I was like, call him immediately. And uh, I caught on phone ninth. I'm like, look, you don't know me. He's like, I heard of you. I was like, I heard a little brother. My friend Terry, my best friend, told me I should do an album with him um, because he heard Speed. And I still technically hadn't heard Speed. I just took his word for it. Then I heard those beats. And I was like, this is why Terry said it. And I was like, yo, let's uh, let's connect. And uh, he's like, cool, I'll send you some beats. And I wrote to one. And I remember being at my ex-girlfriend's house and playing it. Because back then you couldn't send it. I had to play it over a speaker and put the phone to the speaker, and I let the whole thing play, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, recorded by Todd Mumford, who is now, I think, VP or president of legal at Rock Nation, who they both sent me a selfie from when they signed Rhapsody's deal. Todd was in the room. But the first night Wonder song I ever recorded was in Todd Mumford's studio, and he engineered it. Wow. I played the whole song, and I get on the phone, I'm like, what do you think? He's like, man, I gave that beat to Master Ace. And I literally just snapped, and people who know me, like, I just, like, say anything i was like look motherfucker i'm coming to your house i'm off tour november whatever i'm coming to your house and i'm recording the whole album at your house because you're never going to do that to me again the start of a beautiful relationship with a threat yeah the threat yeah and then he and the funny thing the first thing i do was i landed and he played the threat for me because he had just done it for jay-z and the album wasn't out yet i see what you're doing there yes laying references and gems for you and the rest of our listeners to catch this album directly followed the Def Jux album. I mean, I guess this is low-key technically a Def Jux album, right? Yeah, it is, definitely. I purposely gave this album to Def Jux because I was sick of people trying to pigeonhole the label. And I was like, if I put this on this label, I got in a call from um, Warner Brothers before this album dropped. Got asked what I was up to. And uh, I said, I'm good. And I wanted to give this album to L and them because... Like I knew L's heart and I knew L wasn't completely the RJD2 Party Fun Action Committee, Aesop Rock label that they claimed it was. It was that, you know what I mean? But Ace hung out with me and Camus and Metro and Rays and we were like super like wild ass hood kids. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so I was like, yo, I'm gonna give them an album that kind of like pushes the so the, you know, pushes the bubble for Def Jugs, you know what I mean? Song six. Next up, Hot Bars off the first Felt album. 
I spit hot bars, I spit on cop cars I spit game to the chicks that belong to rock stars Got the goods uptown to Hollywood So what you don't like us, your girl probably would Having a good day on the freeways of Lose and Mercer's El Dore Listening to Ghostface, well hold up and let me smile for a minute While I look across the sky for a limit, come and get it I'ma ride this roller coaster till the wheels fall off And I'ma ride your Cali roll until my eel goes soft Take a journey through the mind of a one of a kind Self-made motherfucker that's enjoying this time On land, on air, on mics and on sea Let it all just be, good times on me It's California fool, flyest breezies in the world And we can roll up a bleezy that'll make your toes curl So this was 2002 First Felt album, produced entirely by The Grouch, dedicated to Christina Ricci. And this was one of the first songs I'd heard of yours. I think it might have been through Napster or something. And I didn't know who you or Slug was. I didn't know what an atmosphere was. But I somehow got my hands on it and I was like, what is this? Like, <laughs> I don't know these people, but this is as dope as music I've heard from names that I do recognize, if, if that makes sense. I'll live with that. I know you probably met Slug just from touring and doing shows, right? Yeah, I met him on tour Hieroglyphics in 98. You were on tour with Hieroglyphics. Yeah, Living Legends was open for Hieroglyphics on for the, um, was that the Inner Circle tour with the Inner, whatever the fuck that album was. Their uh, first independent album. Third Eye Vision. Third Eye Vision. You never know that fucking tour. Yeah, how was that tour? Amazing. Amazing. Life-changing. Sounds like it would be. So you met Slug, I'm assuming, in Minneapolis? Yes, at First Avenue, he gave me a copy of Overcast, and I gave him for real. And he eventually makes his way over to L.A. to do this album. You know, I imagine that you've told these stories a lot, probably recently, as you guys just recently released the latest project, yeah. Felt For You. Um, but what was it like having him in L.A.? I would assume this is the first time you're working with somebody so closely who, for all intents and purposes, isn't somebody you grew up with. You don't know him super well. You know, I've had people who visit from out of town who I don't know super well. And I'll be like, yeah, sure, you can crash on my couch. And, you know, it's not always great. So I don't know if he was crashing on your couch, but I guess I'll let you fill in the blanks about how that all went down. We had an extra room. Um, I was living with my first living girlfriend in Orange County. I thought I had made it. I moved all the way to Buena Park, living it up. I had no idea what inner county was. I was still in the hood. Um, but to me, it was paradise. I had a pool. I had a... A girlfriend I thought was really hot and uh, I had an extra room for all my toys and my couch that I grew up on. I took the couch from my mother's house because she was going to throw it out and I had all my memories on that couch. So I took that couch and it was just a room. So Sean had his own room. I could drink beer and smoke cigarettes in my house, in my underwear. You were an adult. Oh, bro. I was adulting so hard. And then my other adult friend came and he smoked cigarettes and drank beer, but he, had, he was more adult than me because he drank coffee. And he taught me how to count bars and hot bars. He revealed in the interview with Justin Hunt recently is how he was teaching me how to count bars. And uh, we would drive my Cadillac El Dorado from Orange County to Van Nuys every day to Grouch's house to record. And we know we roll down the window, smoke cigarettes and listen to Wu-Tang and E-40 and our beats and just have a fucking blast, man. It was a it was a great time. I was um, in love with, I guess, yeah, I guess I try to be in love with my life wherever, wherever I am. So I was in love with my life at that point. Yeah, you know, we would go out by the pool and I think he would smoke weed by the pool because we didn't smoke weed, me or my ex. What was the biggest thing that you learned from him in doing this project? And if you could speak for him, what do you think is the biggest thing that he learned from you? I don't think I taught him shit. 
but from him, for him, I learned how to count bars. Like I, that would be the biggest thing. That's like immeasurable. You know what I mean? And uh, you know, he was kind of getting me out of my shell. I'm still not out of my shell. Like that was the first time I ever sung on an album on that one. Just fucking sing like nobody's watching. You know what I mean? Yes. But be precise with your shit and uh, know how to count the bar. Like Slug is very technical but very free. But I don't know what he learned. I mean, I'm sure he never written with a fucking, uh, you know, a young black kid in the Cadillac through the city of L.A. But we didn't do too much hood shit, man. Like, uh, you know, my neighborhood was really hot at that time. I don't think I, t- I took him to the hood. I was kind of laying low, man. Shit was very real around that time. Oh, one. Woo, boy. So I was definitely. That's why I, how, I guess also, too, like when I said, like, I played to the left. I played to the left more than for the money for my safety. Like, I'm like, this is my new friend. He's really popular in a scene that I need to be popular in. Like the other kind, I was like, people in, around him are like, I saw, I have an eye for talent. If that's not like, I can kind of see where shit's going. If that, and not to pat myself on them, like, whether it's terrorists or this person I booked for pay dues or people I work with, dudes in my crew were like, ah, atmosphere, yeah, they can co headline with us. I was like, no, we need to get on this motherfucker's train in another way and learn what, because they had merch. We didn't know, we had shirts, but we didn't know to call it merch. They're doing something that we're not doing and we could learn something. And this guy's a hell of a rapper and uh, they weren't paying attention. And so I was like, yeah, come to my house. This is my buddy. Like we're fucking friends, you know, he, from there, like he took me on work tour. He took, we did the guy loves ugly tour after we did felt. And I tell him all the time, though, though that consecutive touring saved my life. Like people died that I grew up with during that time. And had I had not been on tour, God knows, you know, because by then I had broke up with that girl and I had to move back to the neighborhood. I wouldn't have made the best choices. I would have been forced to make some choices that put me in a different position. So that was the be- felt was definitely the, the beginning of me playing hard left. I recorded Mercer's The World with a gun on me every day, almost in the session. Like, cause I, the, the, the studio was in my neighborhood and we had problems with another neighborhood. It was crazy, man. So that was also like me freeing myself in another way. I had never had sex with a white woman at that point. Oh, dude, you <laughs> haven't lived. I had not li- yet lived, sir. I had not yet lived. Yeah, you know, you got to see what's out there, I guess. You look for your keys in the, in the same place, you're never going to find your keys. Looking for true love based on the color of someone's skin is kind of ridiculous to me. It's one component, but it shouldn't be the defining component, in my opinion. I, I can't speak for anybody else. Yes. I hadn't understood that yet. Well, imagine going a whole atmosphere tour and not having sex with a white girl. So seven. This is the project that I'm probably the least familiar with. The song is called Wifey, and it is on the White Man Dingo's album, The Ghetto is Trying to Kill Me. A liar, always fight with her off that white liquor. I caught her down at Max Fish with some white niggas. Bathing eight dunks, you know them skate punks. Fuck around with wifey, bitch, you get your face stung. I love shouting, she's my baby mama. So this is you, Daryl Jennifer from Bad Brains, and Sasha Jenkins, the writer and now director, uh, who formed this punk band, The White Man Dingoes. Did you grow up listening to a lot of punk? Um, I didn't become a fan of punk music until Slug set me free. Like, I would have weird dreads, and people were like, you like Bad Brains? And I was like, no. 
And when I finally went to Amoeba to buy Eye Against Eye, I was like, what the fuck is this shit? Motherfuckers yelling. I don't know what the fuck they're saying. Fucking weird shit. So no, I didn't grow up on punk rock. I was reading some remarks that you made around the album's release date, and you were saying that you felt it was really needed because there were so many restrictions and limitations on the blending of music genres and audiences' perception of who was even allowed to blend those genres. And it kind of seems like, once again, you were a bit ahead of your time on that. It was fun, man. It was really their shit, man. Wifey was a song that was already, like, with the hook and everything. Sasha just asked me to fill in the blanks. It's one of the first songs I did for the White Man Dingo's project. But just like I, like always, like I ended up moving in and we did it upstate, finished it upstate with, or in New York with Sasha and upstate with um, Daryl. But uh, yeah, to me, I think that's the most, I guess it's the more left-leaning version of Melrose. Um, we all understand each other. We have, like, you know what I mean? Um, Daryl's from the hood in D.C., Sasha's from the hood in Queens, and I'm from the hood in L.A., so it's kind of just like a, but we had all learned to lean left. Uh, but our roots are well within inner city black culture. They were all about 10 years apart, so I saw myself in a lot of them and um, just learned a lot about just, you know, being a man and great conversations were had. And, uh, man, I can't, I could tell white man dingo stories for days. Uh, I wish, but once again, like, how I also know that it's more authentic and more me is because the fans are hands off on it. And I listened to this, one of my favorite collaborations, probably after Melrose, it's up in my, you know, Mer Melrose, Merce Day. Merce um, Day is really not speaking for me. So why Mendingos has a slight edge, but uh, I listened to the record the other day. I've got the, some, a fan had to send me the vinyl because I didn't get it. So they, a fan gifted me their vinyl, and uh, I listened to the other. It's so right now, like it's so right now. What's happening? Not even just the like the punk and hip hop collaboration, but the lyric and the content is so now. Yeah, I wish it would have done better, but I, I'll take responsibility for painting myself as this person where people aren't willing to accept this other. Uh, I guess, I don't know, Lane. But um, I, I really love that project. And uh, he says, did I do right with my pet iguana? He was referring to his penis. I had no idea. Yeah, I've heard draining the lizard before as a euphemism for peeing. Yeah. And we shouted out Max Fish, which is a hip hop underground hip-hop staple and rock staple in New York City. Shout out to my man Shan, the king of, the king of Max Fish. Yeah, man, I, I really... uh. I love that song specifically on, on there. I, and I love performing it. We did Afropunk a couple times as White Man Dingoes or once. And then once uh, Daryl let me uh, fill in and be the front bat brains, you know what I mean? Which was dope. Stand in HR shadow, I was allowed to. But I love performing with them. I really wish the band would have gotten more recognition because I would have loved to tour and do more shows. Um, musically, no one's fucking with that. Our videos are dope. Uh, our, our songs are dope best time i ever had pulling a concept album together and i've tried before story yeah the, the music is amazing i think i'm rapping my ass off and that song in particular is one of my favorites sasha jenkins is a genius now he's directing you know he did the wu-tang documentary fresh to death i think is the other one and uh he's in he's in tv you know making films he has a band called 1865 it's really dope and daryl's just daryl man i was thinking i think about him often uh, uh a father figure almost but um uh, a big brother because he's just so he would be watching world star every day we record and putting me up on new shit he knows his hip-hop <laughs> i have one final question you have such a large catalog of songs and you mentioned something earlier about developing this very zen approach to life about letting things go you know there's a lot of artists who are very meticulous and they take years working on an album and they're precious over it they toil over it sometimes it's to great effect and sometimes it doesn't make any kind of a difference at all 
you've probably put out three or four records just in the last year. So you're super prolific. And so I wonder, do you sort of have a fondness for your own catalog or is it something where you do it and it's done and you never even think about them again unless somebody else brings them up? Yeah, I'm, I do it and it's done. I live with my records before I release them. I always like to listen to them up until they're done and then they're gone. They don't belong to me anymore. And I've had like critics accuse me of like, oh, this album sounds thrown together or rushed. And uh, one that's been praised as a classic by the critics since 316, but that was done in five days. And then after that, I did Merch for President, which I took 18 months to record. And I toiled over, I did about, I think 60 to 80 songs. And I chose 14 and it didn't get praised as a classic, you know? So I know my process at this point. And yes, yeah, just to get it done, get in the moment, usually get face-to-face -face with the producer or the people I'm working with, make it a moment and document that moment. And I'm, I'm skilled enough where I know that I'm giving my best work in that moment because I know how to give my best work in the moment. And then we walk away from it. Thanks again, go out to Merce, who has probably put out 100 more songs since we recorded this episode. And that sounds like an exaggeration, but in all actuality, I think it's probably been even more than that. If you like this episode, or if you like the podcast in general, don't forget to rate and leave a review of the questions wherever you listen to podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps so much. Thank you to everyone who has done that already. Shout out to the Questions Patreon. Thank you to everyone who has purchased the Questions Hip Hop Trivia card game, available wherever you get books or games through Clarkson Potter and Penguin Random House. You can also go to questionshiphop.com to order yours. Shout out to the Stony Island Audio Network, and I will see you all next week with, well, at this point, you really have no idea what you're getting each week, do you? Keeping you on your toes, but just rest assured that it's always going to be something you enjoy if you're into this extremely in-depth hip-hop music discussion. Till next time. Stony Island Audio.